This lovely passage comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. This morning we're starting a series of sermons which will trace the story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation based around the crucial theme of covenant. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture. It's a key theme for understanding God. If you wonder whether covenant is a central theme for the Bible, we'll just just take a look at how the Bible is put together. Covenant is, is the Greek version of the word testament, which is Latin. We have in the Bible the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Testament, the New Covenant. It is central to the theme of Scripture. It is central to our understanding of God and our relationship with God. I've been reading Andrew White's autobiography, The the Vicar of Baghdad, and he says, much of the church today has rejected the word religion. And I agree with a lot of what's been said on this subject. But I also believe strongly that there is a crucial meaning in the Latin root of that word, ligare, to bind. I am bound to my God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ, who is my master, my leader, and my Messiah. I rely on him completely in my work. I could not attempt to do it without him. The more you recognize your own inadequacy, the more you realize that nothing can be achieved unless you trust and hope simply in God. The Bible does not speak to us about religion. The Bible speaks to us about the God who binds himself in a covenant relationship with us as his people. 
who invites us into a relationship of trust and obedience with him. The first reference to covenant in the narrative of Scripture is found in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18, where God makes a covenant with Noah. When God makes a covenant, he enters into a binding contract or binding agreement between himself and another party. And covenants are foundational to God's dealing with the world he's made and the people who inhabit it. And that was certainly the case for Noah. The world had become such an evil place that God says he's determined to sweep every living creature away in a cataclysmic flood. But he makes a covenant with Noah to preserve his life and that of his family when they enter the ark that God tells him to build and the creatures they take onto the ark with them. When the ark is ready, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Flood waters are released from the great deep and every living creature with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals with him on the ark, every other living creature perishes. Although it's a favourite Sunday school story, it really is a most gruesome tale. Yet the focus of the narrative is not on the destruction that takes place, but upon God's faithfulness to Noah and those with him, and God's making of a covenant with them. After 150 days, the ark grums to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. It's another seven months after that before the ground dries out and Noah is allowed to disembark. And it's then that God determines never again to curse the ground or to destroy all living creatures with a flood. And so God makes what might be a second covenant with Noah or it might be an extension of the first. But the covenant is with Noah his descendants, and every living creature, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. And God promises, never again will all life be cut off by a flood. Never again will there be a flood that will destroy all the earth. And as a sign of that covenant, God puts a rainbow in the sky as a reminder of the covenant that he's made. Does that mean that there were no rainbows before then? John Calvin gives short shrift to such an idea. God says, I've put it in the cloud. Calvin says from these words, certain eminent theologians have been induced to deny that there was any rainbow before the deluge, which is frivolous. For the words of Moses do not signify that a bow was then formed which did not previously exist, but that a mark was engraven upon it, which should give a sign of the divine favour towards man. Rainbows were there before, but God says, this is the meaning of the rainbow. This is its significance. This is what I want you to understand from it, that I've made a covenant with the world never to flood it again. We know how rainbows are formed, the refraction of sunlight through rain in the sky. But the scientific understanding of rainbows does nothing to detract from their beauty or the sense of wonder they can inspire, particularly if you see a complete rainbow or a double rainbow. You stop and you think, that is amazing. And for those who believe in God, there is a sense of gratitude to God for his faithfulness to his promises and for the covenant he's made with all creation. In recent years, 
we've been able to witness the sheer destructive power of even minor floods in this country. Just incredible, the damage that water can cause. And Paris is just recovering from the highest floods in 30 years, where the Seine has risen to 20 feet above its normal levels. Do these floods undo the promises that God made in his covenant? Well, they may cause us dismay, but we need to recognise that they are relatively insignificant compared with the scale of the flood portrayed in Genesis. The deluge from which Noah and his family were saved was nothing less than an undoing of creation. Deborah took us through the story of creation at the start of the service. When God makes the world in Genesis 1, he separates the waters above the earth from the waters on the earth to make the sky. Then he gathers the waters on the face of the earth together into one place so that dry land appears. And God sees all this and it's all good. The decision to reverse this process is taken when God looks at the face of the earth and sees that every inclination of the thoughts of people's hearts was only evil all the time. So because the goodness of the world he'd made had turned to evil, God undid and reversed the process of creation. He broke the boundaries that had kept the floodwaters of chaos in place. So the dry land was engulfed and immersed by water coming up out of the ground, water coming down out of the sky. In the story of creation, people are the pinnacle of God's creative work. It's all made good. Human evil is the undoing of God's work of creation. The well-being of our world is bound up with our moral integrity and our relationship with God. We are inextricably linked with the world and the well-being of the world is bound up with how we live and how we interact with God and the creation that he made. But when the flood came, God was literally starting again from scratch. But having done this once, God makes a covenant that he will never do so again. And when God makes a binding agreement like that, he is faithfully bound to keep it. Because to break covenant would be to deny himself. And it says that God cannot do that. Was the flood a good or a bad thing? Certainly it swept away much that was evil, but does that make the flood good? If it was good, why does God promise never to do it again? Or does the mere fact that God sent the flood mean that it was good because God did it? We're straying into philosophical questions here. Plato invented a character called Euthyphro, who poses a question like this. Is whatever God does good, simply because God does it? And therefore, if God does it, it must by definition be good. Or, is what God does good because it conforms to some standard of goodness that's outside of God? Those two alternatives pose what's called Euthyphro's dilemma. If a thing is good simply because God says it's good, then what's to stop God arbitrarily saying that anything is good, anything goes? God does it, it must be good simply because God does it. But supposing God one day decided that genocide was good, or that murder was good, or that rape was good, would that mean that such things were good? Just to say that whatever God does is good means that good becomes meaningless, actually. We might want to shy away from such an option. But if, on the other hand, goodness is a quality outside of God, 
a quality which God himself has to conform, then God no longer sets the standard for goodness. And if that's the case, and there's some standard of goodness greater than God, is God really worthy of our worship? That's the dilemma that Plato's character posed. What's the Bible's perspective on this? Can't we just say, as the Psalms frequently do, that God is good, and just leave it there? Is God then incapable of evil? Well, Job had some doubts about that. After everything he values is stripped away, and his wife tells him just to curse God and die, he responds by chiding her for talking like a fool. We can't pick and choose what God does to us, he says. We can't accept what is good and decline what is evil. If God is sovereign, he does whatever he pleases. And if he's omnipotent, does that mean that he's capable of doing evil as well as doing good? If you look at the story of creation again, in the story of Adam and Eve, the serpent tempts the couple to eat the forbidden fruit because that will make them like God, he says. You'll be like God if you eat this fruit. You will know good and evil like God. And he's right. After Adam and Eve eat the fruit, the Lord says, they've become like one of us. They know good and evil. And the upshot of that in the story of creation is that the rampant evil that plagues the earth in the days before the flood is unleashed through human evil entering the world. But if God knows good and evil, does that mean that God is capable then of good and evil as well? Can we assume that whatever God does is automatically good? Or is there some external standard of goodness to which God must conform? Not necessarily. God knows both good and evil. The Bible's clear on that. God knows the difference between the two. God then is capable of both. But what what God does is binds himself in a covenant with creation to be good to us. In Genesis 9, God binds himself through his covenant to do good to us to the world and not to do evil. In Psalm 138, where it says, correctly translated, the psalmist says of God, he has exalted his word over his name. What that means is that God has bound himself by his word. God in his sovereignty could do anything he pleased. But he's bound himself by his word in a covenant of trust on our part, and goodness and faithfulness on his part. So God could do whatever he wants. But God has said, actually, I value this world so much. I value the people in it. It is a place of beauty and goodness. And I'm committed to sustaining it. I'm committed to the people in it. I'm committed to act at all times in goodness towards the world that he has made. God has bound himself in a covenant relationship with this world. That's why the idea of covenant is so crucial to God's relationship with us. The Lord could do whatever he pleases. He would be at liberty, should he decide to do so, to snuff out our existence in a moment. All it would take for him would be to direct a passing asteroid into our path. 
But God has made a covenant with all of creation. God has bound himself to this world. God has committed himself to us. And it is his undeniable faithfulness to that covenant which is the basis for our confidence in our continuing existence in his purposes. So God could do whatever, but God will not do whatever because God has made a covenant that he will not break. And because of that, we can trust him. Because of that, we can trust in his goodness. Because of that, we can believe that he will always do what we recognise as being good to the world. So next time you see a rainbow in the sky, do thank God for it. Because it is a visual reminder that the only reason we are still here, alive and breathing in the good world which God has created, is that God has bound himself to the whole of creation in a covenant in which is promised that never again will he wipe us out. We worship God because he is sovereign. There is no power higher than him. We also worship God because he is good. He has promised that he will be. And he's bound himself in the covenant to be good. Our lives and the future of this world depend on God's faithfulness to his covenant. That's why our key response to God starts with trust. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his promise to be good to us. Trust in the God who binds himself in a relation to himself that cannot be broken. We worship the God of the covenant who holds our lives and this world in his hands.